Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, and it will come into play in a little bit during our message. And uh, you perhaps know the background to what's happening here just briefly is Elijah has just had a major victory over the prophets of Baal. And uh, God has revealed himself in an incredible way. Um, And the story picks up in chapter 19 this way. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So uh, Jezebel has just promised to have him killed within the next 24 hours. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts today. Isn't it interesting? I, I find it so. Maybe you guys go, eh, it's not that big a deal, Gary. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that God primarily reveals himself to us in his word in the contexts of people's lives? He did not write a systematic theology with austere, cold statements about his attributes and his work in the world. No. What he has revealed to us has come through the lives of the people through whom he was working. And then we, as people, systematize that into our theologies, and it's important that we understand what he has revealed. But that's not how he originally revealed it. We learn about his attributes and his works as he moves in redemptive history. Now, at times, that can be a little discouraging, if you will. I recall when a number of years back, not that long ago, but we went, we we covered about a thousand years of Old Testament history by looking at the historical books on Wednesday nights. It took us a number of years to go through it. But I recall when we went through the book of Judges, You get to the end of the book of Judges and things are so bad, you just feel like you need to take a shower after you read the book. Just the cruddiness of what was going on there. And then as Lori was preparing to teach uh, Sunday school uh, today, (laughs) this morning, yesterday, uh, she said, I wish the people in the Bible had behaved better. 
I'm so tired of reading about all these things that they do wrong. And that's the truth. That's what we're like. So not only can it be discouraging or upsetting, it's also instructive when we see this is how God has revealed himself because we're just like them. Or you could turn it around and say they're just like us. Nothing has changed. The kinds of things that you see in the Bible are the kinds of things we continue to do today. Therefore, the reality of God's work in their lives can be identified with God's work in our lives because we're no different than them. And that's the premise of this study in which we are presently engaged. See, we're all seeking the same thing. In this, in this broken down world in which we live, we have considered, based upon Genesis chapter 3, that we understand everybody. Everybody is seeking God, healing, and community. We're all seeking to fill in those things that were broken at the fall. And those are the three clear directions in which things broke for us. Our vertical relationship got broken. Our internal orientation got broken. And our horizontal relationships got broken. And in one way or another, people are always trying to repair those and to get back something that was lost there. Now, they may not know that's what they're looking for, and some may know that that's there, but they're going to willingly put in some type of counterfeit, some type of substitute, but it is what we're looking for. Every day we gather here, each one of us in some way is hoping one of those areas, if not more than one, gets touched and brings something good into our lives in that way. And so it's, it's safe to say that we are a people we, right here, seeking God, healing, and community with the rest of humanity. Now, in seeking God, the way we approach that, we were trying to show that God enlightens us. Oh, this world can only make sense if the God of the Bible is the one whom we turn to and look to understand the world around us. It only makes sense if we reorient our lives to His presence his perspective. Otherwise, we just have confusion. So God enlightens us. He gives us understanding. But this next element, which we've been spending time on right now, the healing, when we're seeking healing, we said last week that that can frighten us. See, because it takes personal work. We do not find the healing if we are not willing to go through the personal work necessary to get our lives where they need to be. There will be a consistent internal discord if we think somehow we can just, you know, keep going the way we're going and one day it's all going to get better for us. That's not what's going to happen. We all have a growth track that God is trying to keep us on. Now, as we saw last week, this is all by way of review, as we saw last week, the first step for us is to admit our own guilt before God. we got to look it square in the face and own up to two things. 
First, we have to own up to our acts of sin. That yes, I did that. Yes, I said that. Yes, I thought that. I got to own that. Plain and simple. But the second thing, if we're truly going to move to the place of healing, is our potential for sin. We've got to own up to that also. And to understand that I have every bit as much the potential for engaging in gross, horrible sin as everything I read about in Scripture and everything that I see in the world around me, regardless of how I try and tell myself that that's not really true. You know, there's that that phrase, we've all heard it, as somebody here looks at somebody here, and they figure their circumstances are a little better, and the phrase that goes like this, but for the grace of God, there go I. Well, that's true. But you see, I think we ought to consider that just briefly, and then we'll pass on. If that is only applied to my acts of sin, it may be nothing more than indicating pride. It may be nothing more than that. Remember, remember about the publican and the Pharisee went up to pray, right? Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this publican. Right? And, and, and we may very well be in that place. I don't do those things. I'm so thankful that I don't do those things as we look down on the person who has done or is doing those things. That can be a bit of pride in there, folks. Do you know what? When it's applied to our potential for sin, when we recognize, I haven't done those specific things, but I have the potential for every one of them. I can be as, I can be just as godless, just as coarse, just as ugly, because I'm just as fallen. Ah, now we begin to understand. And we go, you know what, Lord? I really do need your grace because I will head in the same direction. And I don't want to be there because I know it's not good. So I need your grace. So these are the things that we, we're talking about doing the personal work. We're talking about being honest. There's no excuses. There's no one else to blame. It's a political season. I'm sorry I keep coming back to this, but uh, they just offer so many ways to illustrate the brokenness of man. Now, we do understand. If you've watched it closely enough, you know that that uh, the president, whom I, you know, I, I think he's done an okay job. He has surprised me with the job he did. Um, but he's had his share of things where people, you know, he, he tweets something out that he didn't check to see if it was true. He passes this along. He gets information from here. And people call him out on it. And rightfully so. He should be a little more careful in those things that he does. Because he then communicates something which is just not accurate. And he need, he's needed to own that. And if he, uh, if he winds up losing the election, I think to a great degree at a human level, it's because that's the kind of stuff he's done. He, he, he hasn't had the wisdom to go, I need to, need to be careful here. But it's, it goes on both sides of the aisle. This, if you watch the debate, you watch the debate, and, and, and the president rightfully raised the question of Hunter Biden and uh, the stuff that's coming out into the news and, and uh, the, the former vice president wanted to very quickly say, oh, well, that's already been demonstrated as being, you know, it's just a fabrication. It's something for the Russians or disinformation. And, and Trump was like, what? The lap- they have the laptop. They have the laptop. You're telling us that's 
Russian disinformation, the fact that they physically have the laptop where this stuff is on, that's craziness. But you see, they just demonstrate for us both sides of the aisle. They demonstrate for us how it's just like, yeah, we don't really want to face that. We don't really want to talk about that. We don't really want to go there and admit that. And so what we're talking about here that if we're going to find the healing that we need inside of us, we don't blame it on the Russians. We don't blame it on, well, somebody sent me false information and I tweeted it along, you know, that's what they said. No, we own up. We've got to own up to who we are, what we have done. That's the first step, is that we own our own guilt before the Lord. The second step, and this is what I want to talk about today, is we own our attitude about God. Now, I mentioned it might be more frightening, this next step, than admitting our guilt before God, depending on how we were raised and, and what our experience has been. Now, there are many places in Scripture, I'm not trying, we can't go to all of them. There's many places in Scripture where people's attitudes towards God were less than stellar. We're going to look at two. And I trust in looking at these two, we're going to see Oh yeah, they are kind of like us. We, we have had the scripture reading about Elijah where he comes to that point and God is he's giving him nourishment and telling him to get some rest because he's going to have to, he's going to, have to go for, for quite a ways. And, and uh, uh, he says, yeah, I alone, I alone am left and they seek to take my life. So we'll pick it up from there. We're going to go to verse 11 of 1 Kings chapter 19. We read this. Then he said... Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill." Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Friends, Elijah was feeling pressed by life. Man, he was just being crushed at this point. And you could understand why. We can identify things, three things real simply. First of all, the sheer exhaustion of what he has been through recently. Emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, it has drained him completely. 
that's understandable. The other thing that is pressing in on him is the isolation. See, people didn't appear to answer his challenge in 1 Kings chapter 18 when he calls out to the people of Israel. He says, look, how long, how long do you hold between two? If God is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But make a decision. You've got to decide who it is you're going to follow. And they didn't seem to really make a decision. And so here he is calling out almost into the wilderness with his voice, trying to get people to come back to the Lord. Another element of isolation is, you know, he recently, in, 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 he had a great victory in slaying all the prophets of, of Baal, but you know, he was outnumbered 452 to 1. There were 450 prophets of Baal plus Ahab and Jezebel all out against him. And he had to stand up against all of that in their mocking and their hatred and their anger. And lastly, and we're all susceptible to this, are we not? He's, he's struggling not only with exhaustion, not only isolation, but also misperception at that point settles in. What's the misperception? When he says twice, I alone am left. I'm the only one seeking you, Lord. I'm the only one who is making sacrifice for you. I'm the only one who's keeping my focus where it needs to be. Take my life. I can't handle it anymore. I alone I'm left. And God said, no, you're not. I have 7,000 people that I know by name. 7,000 who are standing true. Elijah, you're not alone. So he was feeling pressed by life. And I happen to think Elijah was feeling unimpressed with God at that point. Wouldn't you and I be a little bit unimpressed? He has had this great victory, and he's running for his life. Great victory. And now Jezebel is gunning for him. It's like, well, what's up with that, Lord? I served you. I did what you wanted me to. I acted righteously, and my life is on the line. I can't imagine he escaped the thoughts of, where are you, God? I'm alone. That's his misperception. There's no help from anywhere coming my way. Where are you, God? Seems to me the only solution, Lord, is just this. Take my life from me. And that's what he said in verse 4. Take my life from me. <laughs> You're not helping me in this thing. You're not giving me what I need to follow up on this victory. Just take my life. Because I'm done. He was pressed by life, unimpressed with God. And that brings us, friends, as I said, you know, how we, we can take their lives and help them with our, that helps us understand our lives. It brings us to what I want to say this morning. Try and be as simple and straightforward as I can. When we feel pressed by life and unimpressed with God, it's time to press through to wholeness. Not to check out, not to give up, but to press through. Now, it's easy for me to say that. But it can be a frightening thing to press through. And, and can, I, can I say I understand that it sounds like a platitude? All right, And I don't like Christian platitudes. They bug me to no end. 
I want, I want to be able to minister to people where they are really at in life, and sometimes the platitudes just don't help. But this sounds like a platitude. When we feel pressed by life and unimpressed with God, it's time to press through to wholeness. It's not a platitude. It's a call to something that's very hard. And it's hard especially if the only one we have to count on, God, doesn't appear to be coming through for us. Oh yeah, well just trust God. Uh, I tried that. He doesn't appear to be doing anything on my behalf. And then we're left with some questions. What if he doesn't come through? Where's that going to lead me? What if he can't come through? What if he won't come through? And then the one that we probably all struggle with from time to time. We're going to get honest. What if he's not even there? You're saying to press through? Keep going? What if he's not even there? Or we take a little different direction with this. When we have these things going through our mind, Christians aren't supposed to feel this. I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to always think that God is wonderful and great and, and that He's good and, and that's what I'm supposed to do. So I don't know where to go with this reality inside of me that, that says I'm not too sure about God right now. Or we do this to ourselves. I, I, I'm the only one feeling this. Elijah thought he was the only one who didn't uh, didn't follow Baal. We, we think we're the only one in this situation. We look around and other Christians are all happy. We go on Facebook and they're on vacation and they got pictures of their family at holidays and all other Christians are happy. Just look at them smile, but I am here in this brokenness. Or we come to church and everybody smiles. Everybody thinks it, you know, it's good. We put it all on, don't we? We put it on. I've watched it happen here. I've watched it happen where here's a family you can tell they're arguing out in the parking lot as they walk to the church. They come in and they're smiling and everything's good. And you know when they leave again, they're gonna, tension's going to be filling the car. You know what's going to happen. You know why you know what's going to happen? Because you and I have been through it too. So let's quit kidding ourselves. We ask the question, do I even believe this stuff anymore? You're telling me to push through, and I'm not sure I even believe this stuff anymore. Or we go this direction. Am I wrong for feeling this? Will I be judged for feeling this? Because you know what? You can't question God. God's God. But that, that's the upper hand that He has that I always found so difficult. God is God, so you can't question Him. You can't say that He did something wrong. You don't get to do that. He's perfect. Where does that leave you when you really feel pretty unimpressed with him and his perfections as how they're being played out in your life? Will he be angry with me for feeling this? And, and on and on it goes. And yet the truth remains. When we feel pressed by life and unimpressed by God, it's time to press through to wholeness despite all of those things. Sometimes, we look, rather than pressing through, we, we look or find or don't even realize that we've fallen into patterns that 
um, our attempt to our attempt to deal with these things that are are real to us if we have not yet examined them. Now, the three thoughts come to my mind. I would, would by no means be exhaustive. And, we, and I want to be careful that our attitude towards God does not explain everything. But it, this is the personal work. We've got to find out if that's there. That's my point. It's hard work to go deep inside and say, okay, Lord, examine me. What is really here? And to come to grips with that. One thing we might do is we might push it down. We're, we're going to deny that. No, 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 I don't think that about God. I'm not, I'm not disappointed with God. I'm not unimpressed with God. I think God is wonderful. I never forget in our previous ministry one night I was helping with Awana in, in, in the Cubbies. In the, in the Cubby song, the kids are singing the Cubby song and the leaders are leading them in the Cubby song. And I don't know if it's changed, but at the time, we are one of Cubbies. We're happy all day long. We know that Jesus loves us. That's why we sing this song. And at that point, the missionary wife says to one of the other leaders, and that's why we are all on psychologists' couches later in life. <laughs> because we're not happy all day long. Life is a struggle. Life is hard. Life presses in on us. But sometimes we feel like we've got to push it down. That's one thing we do. Or we can go the other extreme direction when we're feeling this stuff, and we lift it up, man. And the anger just comes out. There's the anger. Okay? We're disappointed in the outcomes that God is allowing to happen in our lives. Disappointed in you, God. The anger comes out. I believe when we feel like God has let us down, I believe that's where a lot of atheists get their start. Because they bought into this thing that because you're a Christian, you're happy all the time, right? They find out, no, I'm really not happy all the time. And I was supposed to be, and that's why I trusted Jesus. And we don't generally tell people, hey, guess what? <laughs> you came to Christ, you just engage yourself in a spiritual battle. And there's real work that needs to be done in order to win this thing and to move forward. And so at times we get angry and says, God, it's not worth it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it anymore. And some of us decide we're going to believe God doesn't even exist. <laughs> not, that there's, not that there's any necessarily rational thought to justify that. It's just like, no, I don't believe it. I'm not going to believe it anymore. And then sometimes if we don't push it down, we don't raise it up in anger, our disappointment, sometimes we seek to medicate it in different ways. Not just with medications, it may be, but this is when we get into addictions this is when we get into distractions. Different things to make the pain go away. I don't want to have to deal with this part of my life. I don't want to have to do the real work. So I will fill my life with something so I don't have to ask God to examine me and come to grips with the real disappointment that I'm feeling, with the real pain that I'm addressing. So... Where might we go? If it's not addictions, distractions. You know, here, here's some thoughts. These things, are there's nothing wrong with them in themselves. But there are people who, video games. We're just gonna, man, I'm just going to play video games and I'm just going to zone out with video games. Shopping, food, television, hobbies. 
Hobbies are wonderful. We all need, we all need to be you know, away from the, from the burdens of daily life. A hobby is a great thing. But when hobbies are what we live for, and hobbies are preventing us from ever really doing serious thinking because I can just kind of like, like medicate it, right? Just like keep it at bay. I, I don't know how to deal with it. They can get out of place in our lives. They can become more to us than, than, than just that healthy value of what a, a hobby ought to do for us. So these are, these are symptoms. That's what they are. They're just stuff that, that begin to show up in our lives. And in the, in the, you know, the denial, we put it down. The anger, we blow off on it and just explode. The depression, because we are not dealing with it, we don't understand what's going on inside of us. And we may, we may try and cope with them in these different ways, but you know, there's one thing we know, if we dare to look in the mirror, if we dare to get honest, we dare to take that step, that frightening step, we know we're not being honest with ourselves. And we know we're not being honest with God. We know it. So if those are the symptoms, I only know one solution. And that is, get real with God. That's it. Get real with God. Be willing to address this stuff. But we're not impressed with him right now. We're not really, you know, Lord, I'm not real thrilled about being on speaking terms with you right now. You haven't really done a lot for me. In in an interesting little book called The Hidden Rift with God, William Back is a pastor counselor. I I think he makes the statement, which to me is absolutely spot on. At least it was in my experience. The rift begins when we suspect Him, that is God, of not being good to us. That's when things begin to break down. And he goes on to say how we let those misperceptions stay and it begins to interrupt our our faith life with Him. And things fall apart. Well, friends, as we wrap this up, I'd like to. I'm going to make a couple more thoughts here, and then, and then, we'll just let you go. It's worth getting honest about this stuff, regardless of how frightening it is. It's worth getting honest about it because, as we've been trying to say, the only way out is through. All the other means will not get you free from this. And, and if you will allow me to speak from personal experience, twice, I've, ways, I've waved my fists at the heavens. And either time, and I mean this in absolute sincerity, either time, God would have been just to strike me down right then. Right now. Twice. The first time was in college. When he was seeking to get hold of my life, but I was still living under a system, a system that said, when the question was asked, why did Jesus die? Jesus died so that if you're good enough, you can get into heaven. So I spent the next number of years trying to be good enough to get into heaven. And by the time I got to college, realized I am not good enough to get into heaven. And I saw a lot of sin going around me, which looked really appealing. And I said, Lord, I've had it. I can't do it. I can't do it. 
and I would rather just go about living my life, whatever sin I want to get into, and you can send me to hell because I can't bear this guilt anymore. And he could very righteously have judged me right there and said, okay, I'll do that. The second time, I waved my fist at the heaven when he would have been righteous to judge me. Because when I waved my fist at him and I said, you gave me a bad deal. And that's a quote. You gave me a bad deal. Have you ever noticed, we're not usually angry with God when we get a good deal. When we feel like it's a good deal, well, we will stand up with the best of them. And the preacher will say, God is good. And we'll say, all the time. And the preacher will say, all the time. And we'll say, God is good. And we're all over that puppy when things are going well. Do you know the crazy thing is? I would say it was probably about a year. I can't put dates to it. About a year before hitting the wall of burnout. I remember saying to a friend, I remember saying, you know, there's a lot of things I still don't understand about the Christian life, but I think this one thing I really do understand, that God is well-intended towards me. I had no idea as I made that statement. Oh, I, this one I got nailed down pretty good. I had no idea that I was going to go crashing into the wall that says, God gave me a bad deal. No idea it was coming. I was angry. I was really angry. Not righteously angry, but really honestly angry. And I was also scared. You see, my disappointments and my fears... In some ways, they were similar to Job's. Remember, this is why God wrote it in people's lives. So we can grasp that others have gone through this too and that God is faithful and, and we can trust Him because we can see how He worked in other people's lives rather than just putting it in, in personal, propositional statements. In Job chapter 13, Job chapter 13 in verses 20 to 22. You know the backstory to Job, right? This guy's suffering like nobody has ever suffered before. And he does not know why. And he wants to know why. And he wants an accounting with God so he can lay his complaints out before him. And in Job chapter 13, beginning in verse 20, he says, Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Note that. I'm ready to be honest with you, God, but there's two things that, that they kind of they have me concerned. Number one, with, don't withdraw your hand far from me, verse 21, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call and I will answer. Or let me speak, then you respond to me. I'm ready to have the conversation, but these two things, Lord, they kind of have me on edge. Don't abandon me. Don't abandon me. And don't let the, the magnitude of your sovereignty and your justice overwhelm me and that I fall victim to it. When I shook my fists at the heavens and said, God, you gave me a bad deal and I was needing to push through, to press through, I remember there were two prayers that I prayed repeatedly. 
One, don't leave me, Lord. Don't abandon me. Because I know if he did, I'm going to fall into a dark abyss. And I don't know how you get out of it. Lord, I need you to hang on to me. That's number one. Even though I'm screaming that you are the problem, Lord, I need you to hang on to me. Secondly, don't judge me. Please don't let your righteous, sovereign judgment fall on me. And this is at a time when I'm raging that everything that has to do with the Christian life, the Christian faith, the Bible, everything. And I'm in ministry at this point, friends. You've got to understand that. And I would see people get up in front of the church and they'd give testimony or something and I would be angry by what they were saying. I was looking for things to, to criticize and to put down and to say why that's wrong, that's wrong, or that's wrong. And God could easily have said, you are due for some judgment, buddy. And bing! And he'd have been just. But you know what? He didn't abandon me. I tell the story in, in the book, The Art of Grace. He didn't abandon me. You know what he did? The darkest moment. He brought a woman from our church who hardly knows us. Brought a woman to our church and she handed me a hot dish at our door to feed my family. And as she hands me that hot dish, you have those moments, haven't you? It's as if God spoke it. I didn't hear a voice, but it's as if he spoke it. He said, I am here. I am with you. A hot dish. He didn't abandon me. And he didn't judge me. He allowed the work of Jesus on the cross to be effective on my behalf and to bear the judgment that I deserve so much. And as I continued to press through, God graciously allowed me to see my exhaustion. It was of my own doing. He hadn't asked me to work like that. He hadn't pushed me in that way. And he showed me how to live a different way. No, I still have the struggle. I tell you what, I could go back that. I still have the tendency to do that, but I have the freedom to know how to take a break now, to how to take that 15-minute nap. He enabled me to change my thinking, to live life from a new center. He brought healing. He brought healing to my soul. which is why I'm able to testify, friends, as frightening as it is, as difficult as it may be, and I will be glad to walk through the journey with you if you need it. But when we feel pressed by life and unimpressed with God, it's time to press through to wholeness. He will bring us through, but we've got to get honest about what's going on. We've got to get honest about what's happening. I'm just going to close with this one last thought. I trust I'm, I trust I'm not in a bad place for saying it because I hope it awakens some things to some people. As I look out, and I'm not in judgment, it's just what I observe, and I see rigidity, harshness, bitterness, a judgmental spirit in someone, I always wonder if there isn't room for a deeper healing by the Spirit of God at that point. 
that they're hiding something. They haven't brought something before the Lord and, and, and this is how they're covering it up with what is being expressed through those things. Because i got to tell you, after God brought healing in these areas, the joy, the blessing, the goodness is something I was never experiencing before. And I wonder whether or not there aren't some people who, man, I'm so committed to Jesus. You can't, I can't tell you how committed I am to Jesus. But, but you know what? You're not letting them heal you. You're not letting them speak to what's in your heart. And you're continuing on with this pain. And so I encourage you, friends, if God has spoken to you today, if God has said today, oh, you know what? Your, your journey... Your journey is like Elijah's. Your journey is like Job's. Your journey is like the pastor's in that you have some things that you're struggling with me about, but I'd love to bring healing to those areas. Can I encourage you to listen to the prompting of the Spirit and begin to get honest with God? He can handle whatever it is you bring to Him, and He desires to bring healing to your spirit.